Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. I'm Julie Sternberg. I'm a children's book author and one of the co-hosts of the Book Dreams podcast. And I'm Eve Johallam. I'm also a children's book author and I'm the other co-host of the Book Dreams podcast. We are thrilled to be here at the Miami Book Fair interviewing Jane Smiley, one of my favorite all-time authors. (laughs) We're so delighted to meet you. Uh, As you know, you have written dozens of books, including A Thousand Acres, which won a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, Jane's novel Horse Heaven was shortlisted for the Orange Prize in 2002. And one of her recent novels, Private Life, was chosen as one of the best books of 2010 by The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. Jane's most recent book is The Delightful Perestroika in Paris, which is the book we're here to talk about today. Jane, for people who haven't had the chance to read Perestroika yet, could you describe a bit of what the book is about? Well, it, it's based on a horse. The, the main character is a racehorse who uh, runs at Otoy Racecourse, which is outside of Paris. And she escapes because she is a curious filly. She's three years old and she escapes and she wanders and wanders and finds herself in the Place du Trocadero on the west side of the Seine. And she's a little nervous, but she she finds a dog there who decides to sort of get acquainted with her. And then the rest of the book is about their adventures in Paris and what they do and where they go and who they beat. You've said that you got the idea for Perestroika back in 20, uh, back in 2009. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us where the idea came from and then how it, how and why it came to fruition a decade later? Well, it came because I was in Paris and I was visiting a woman who I really wish would start writing her novel, who's a horse racehorse trainer in France, but she's actually from Wisconsin. And um, I was visiting the place where she kept her horses at the time, and we were chatting. And then we, then my husband and I went into town and looked for something to eat, and we ended up at the Patisserie Carrette, which is in the Place de Trocadero, which I'd never been at that point. We had wonderful, wonderful, wonderful French onion soup. And I said to my husband, you know, wouldn't it be funny if one of those racehorses escaped into Paris? And we just laughed. Mm -hmm. Um, The horse was based on one of my horses, one of the ones I bred, whose name is Perestroika. And um, she's a very eccentric and fun horse. So I thought I would just pretend that she would that she was in France. She would like that. She would like being in France. She's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. She would say, she would say that. And so I just decided to play around with it. I thought this is really ridiculous idea. I was working on 
I was working on other books at the time and then in the following years. And but I kept going back to it and I kept thinking, oh, this is really fun. And, it, and also, of course, it meant that I had to research, do a lot of research by going to Paris and eating a lot of pastries. Yeah, every job has its unique <laughs> downsides, <laughs> challenges. Yeah, and actually, I'd never been—I'd uh, been in the regular parts of Paris, but I'd never been on the West Side, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. it, it's there. It's a, there's a steep hill above the Seine that leads to the Square de Trocadero. There's a lot of buildings. There's some interesting museums and some interesting artifacts there's a staircase that they say is the staircase where charles dickens lived when he had his wow. mistress in paris and there's all kinds of stuff going on there um my, my favorite street probably is emile zola avenue so i mm -hmm. walked down there because i love zola and it was just fun. It was fun to explore that that side of Paris. It was fun to go and watch horse racing in France, which is different from the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it just it, sort of led me on. Yeah. Hearing you talk about it, your voice has kind of a dreamy quality. And it's reminding <laughs> me of the book because the book has a dreamy quality to it. And also, most of the important characters are animals, right? Mm -hmm. There's Paris the horse, there's Frida the dog, Raoul the raven, and Kurt the rat. And there's also an eight-year-old boy named Etienne. Julie and I are children's book authors, and it struck both of us that although Perestroika is marketed as, and certainly works as a book for adults, it's also a lovely book for children. And so we were wondering, did you conceive of it as a book for younger or older readers, or maybe a book for all ages? I didn't even conceive of it as anything. I just wanted to write it. I knew that um, the that children, because I was when I was a kid, I loved books about animals, so I knew that it would appeal to children. But I wanted it to appeal to adults too. I wanted it to be um, just have sort of a general appeal, but mostly I wanted it to appeal to me. <laughs> and <laughs> That's what they say, right? You're supposed to write what you want to read, mm -hmm. but it doesn't always work out that that's a book yeah, that publishers want to publish, I guess. Yeah. 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 But I, I, when I was wandering around Paris, I know, especially in this area, which is uh, the Champ de Mar, which is on the, which is the place where the um, Eiffel Tower sits. The mm -hmm. Champ de Mar is huge and it's surrounded by really interesting buildings um, some very interesting neighborhoods with obviously wonderful pastries and um, interesting people who live there. And I've never been to a neighborhood in Paris that wasn't interesting, but there was something about this one, maybe because it was new to me, that I found especially fascinating. So um, that was one of the things that pulled me on. And then the people that I saw, you know, they were, they looked kind and I knew there had, there had to be human characters. Mm -hmm. I knew there was going to be a boy because when I was eight years old, all I ever wanted was to find a horse in my backyard. You know, <laughs> um, unfortunately I never did. Except one time when I was, I think I was about 14. There she was, 
there was a horse in my backyard. Well, it turned out <laughs> for for real, an actual <laughs> grass eating horse in your backyard. Yep. And it turned out that she had escaped from um, some some of the neighbors uh, who are on, weren't on our street, but were a couple of streets over. And I don't know how she ran all the way to our yard, but so um, I knew who she, I knew where she came from when I called them up, and so they um, came and got her, and then they took. The, the the girl who was about my age took me for a little ride. So that was, so that was the dream come true. I wonder so, whether yeah. that was actually the original seed for the novel. <laughs> <laughs> the wandering horse. Definitely feels like it could be. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, well, we we just I'm read a book about dreams and so it's all in our <laughs> Well, I have to say that this horse that is based on my own horse, Paris. She is really curious, and it's very interesting to me to watch the things that she does that indicate her curiosity. Um, one of the things she'll do, there's a, there's a mounting block with a, a lid that opens, and she'll walk straight over to that lid and toss it up and look in there and see what's in there. And I'm not sure it's always about a carrot or a piece of sugar or something like that. She's just curious. And I watch her when I'm when I'm walking her around and I see her look at this. I see her look at that. And a lot of horses will will spook, but she'll go toward it. Oh, wow. To see maybe what it is. Mm -hmm. And so that um, so her personality was also what inspired me. Um, I didn't think any of the other horses I knew would ever, you know, would ever care to wander into Paris, but she was the one who would just go step by step and say, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. Yeah, and that really comes across too in in her wanderings in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've written a number of books for children as well as young adults and adults. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether you have anything, any qualities that you think of as defining a children's book versus a, a book for adults, or do you, do you let your, you know, editors make that decision? Well, the children's books I've written um, were, were uh, eight books about horses. Um, one series of five about a, a, t- a young, a young teenager mm-hmm. who, um, rides and trains horses and she has a few students and so they're about her and her relationship to her family but also to the horses that her father buys for her to train I thought that was interesting but then in the next series which is related to it the main character is only nine and she's one of those girls who just can't live without a horse of her own but her family can't afford it, and they don't live in a place where a horse could live. So she's a student of this other girl. But one of the things I loved about her was that she was what we used to call when I was growing up, contrary. Mm-hmm. You know, which that's which a kind means, way of putting it. <laughs> it means she she does things her own way. And she, uh, she loves the horses and she's, I thought she was a more fun um, character than the very good girl who was in the first five of them. So I enjoyed writing all of them. I enjoyed exploring the personalities of the horses that they 
knew and exploring their relationships to the horses. So those, those were lots of fun. Mm-hmm. And you've written about horses in other novels, but mm-hmm. in addition to these novels for, for young people, yeah. but if I'm not mistaken, you've never written a book from the point of view of a horse. Is that correct? Well, horse Heaven talks about the, the uh, six horses that are sort of the main characters. Mm-hmm. And they each, I, I won't say that it's from, things are from their point of view, but they each have idiosyncratic qualities um, mm-hmm. that indicate that they have their own ideas and feelings about what's going on. And I think once you've been involved with horses for very long, you see how individual they are and how, and you become more and more curious about what they might be thinking, what they're really thinking. Now the horse I'm, I'm riding now and I'm gonna ride later today, he's really smart. And so I did an experiment with him a few weeks ago where I sat up really straight, loose rein, my, my legs loose, right in the middle of the arena. And all I did when we were walking around was turn my head and he just went wherever I turned my wow. head. Wow. Amazing. And I had not experienced that before. So I, that made me attribute sort of things to him that I hadn't attributed to other horses. And one of them was attentiveness to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But another one was a kind of physical sense of, of even the slightest movement in me, like my head turning. Mm-hmm. Um, about a week ago, he was running around um, the arena and I started walking around and he came over and just followed me around and he wasn't behind me. He was just kind of walking along with me like he was my friend. And I could not help myself saying, this guy is my friend. Right. I'm yeah. thinking he's going to, his voice is going to end up in your head soon. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be another book. He considers himself very smart. Yes. And and it makes me wonder what made you decide to tell parts of Perestroika in Paris from the point of view of its animal characters, not just a horse, but we're, we follow many, many animal characters, well, not many, but several animals um, point of view in the story. Well, once, once I was in Paris's head, then the others came just naturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dog character, Frida, she's based on a dog that we had who's now passed on, who was a really interesting dog. She was a German short hair. She was incredibly athletic. But if you looked at her um, across the room, she always looked like she'd written six books about existentialism. You know, she, <laughs> yeah. she, looked, she looked- There was an old soul behind those eyes. <laughs> but also- but A sad also one. Rest, you know? So I had to, I wanted her in there and- I, but I had to give her a reason for having these feelings. And then once those two were in there, then the others just came. I mean, when I, one time I was in Paris and I heard the ravens. I thought there has to be, there have to be ravens. Mm-hmm. And there used to be a little pond right near the Eiffel Tower. And I was walking around. I saw mallards on the pond. I thought, well, there have to be mallards. What am I going to name them? And then... <laughs> 
The mallards are fabulous. The mallards and the raven. Well, and we we need yeah. to say for people who haven't read the book yet, the mallards' names are Sid and Nancy. <laughs> right, 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 right. That, made, so that made me laugh. I have yeah. to say. It yeah. made me laugh too. And then I was walking, uh, looking at the houses and trying to figure out how to get Paris in a house. And then the houses were so old, I figured there have to be rats in there. There just have to be. Because the walls were thick, you know, and um, I don't see how you could not have rats in those walls. And so then I, that gave me the idea of having a couple of rat characters. So it, it just sort of was one step at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the name for a horse, Perestroika, for a second? Uh -huh. Both, um, you know, Perestroika brings to mind the Russian political movement and- yeah also the second half of Tony Kushner's Angel, Angels in America. <laughs> but I'm guessing those were not in your mind when you, no, uh, when you chose the name. Perestroika is the name of my own mayor. Yes. Because her sire was Moscow Ballet. I see. Uh, okay. And so um, when I named her, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the, the Perestroika idea. So I named her Perestroika, but then her trainer when she was at the racetrack in LA, she just called her Paris. So um, she's now known as Paris, but that's how she got Perestroika. You always name your horse with, with something that has a little bit of a connection with their uh, sire or their dam or both. Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't know what else to do with Moscow Ballet, but make it Perestroika. Got it. Now, the opening sentence of the book is Paris had won her race. And then you go on to say she almost danced across the finish line. But this isn't a book about horse racing. And I know that your real life Paris ran in some races. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with horse racing, both in the United States and how it compares to racing in Europe? Well, my experience in America has been quite mixed because um, in America, horse racing is extremely <clears throat> iffy, chancy, dangerous, and let's say corrupt. Mm. Um, now, I have a friend who's a veterinarian. He um, was a horse, was, he was a veterinarian at the racetrack. He's now in charge of various racing committees, and he has fixed or done his best to fix the drug problem, especially in California, but maybe around the country. But this has been a long time issue. Mm -hmm. um, when, I, when, when I first got interested in horse racing, it was because I bought a horse to, buy, to ride and I looked up his pedigree or I didn't, I couldn't look it up then, but I, I wrote the, um, uh, the racing people and I, found his pedigree and I was blown away. He was born in Germany, raced in France, he raced in upstate, you know, he raced in New York, he raced in California, he raced in Chicago. He was gorgeous. He was sound. He had a wonderful pedigree. And I thought, oh, well, they're all like this, right? <laughs> and so when I got interested in having some of my own racehorses, I was totally naive. I did not know what was going on. I was able to find um, honest trainers, but you're just swimming against the, you're swimming against um, the, the, what's the word, 
tide? No, the current, the current oh, tide. Swimming against yes. the tide, or at least you were in the old days, if you wanted to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, in it's better in some places, um, especially in France. Um, it's gotten better in in the UK, but it's still iffy. It's still dangerous. It's still. Um, not what it was, not what I thought it was mm-hmm. um, when back when I was, you know, first learning about it and thinking about it and enjoying horse, horse racing. Um, and I eventually stopped because it was too, it was too sad to watch the horses break down and um, to watch the jockeys get hurt and, mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that, that was a thing that I, that was a phase that I went through that lasted a long time. But, but as a result, I ended up with some fun horses and um, with interesting personalities. So I learned a lot about horses themselves and I still adore thoroughbreds. I think they're very smart and um, very athletic and they're lots of fun. So we've talked a little bit about the animals and your observations of them, sometimes because you own them, sometimes because you were just being a curious person yourself. Or they turned up in your backyard. <laughs> or they turned yeah. up in your backyard. <laughs> exactly. But I'm wondering, um, were, were any of the animal characters particularly easy or particularly hard to write? And you know, did you find yourself thinking things like, you know, I'd make a great raven. <laughs> what, how, what was it like? <laughs> well... The only problem I had was with the Raven. My editor, after she read the draft a couple of times, she said, this guy has to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to give him a little self-knowledge and and give him a reason to stop talking so much. <laughs> but um, she liked all the rest of them, and I did too. Um, mm-hmm. I liked all the rest of them. Yeah. Were you sort of guessing or, I, I mean, obviously you weren't actually speaking with them, but, but were you, how much were you basing on research or, uh, you know, observation? Well, the horse and the dog, I was, I, I know a fair amount about horses and dogs, but the other animals, I would look up and see what there were, what sort of things they ate, what sort of things they did, how, how they socialized with one another, um, what their intrinsic characteristics. I mean, when I looked up rats, there was a difference between brown rats and black rats. So I, I tried to fiddle with that. Um, when I looked up ravens, it was really fascinating about their relationships with one another and as a group and what they did as a group. And the mallards too were, um, were lots of fun. So yeah, the research was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. I was especially moved by Frida, who's the stray German Shepherd pointer dog who befriends Paris, the one based on the dog you had. Mm-hmm. And Frida is vulnerable and lonely after the, de- after the death of her owner, who was a homeless artist named Jacques. And early on in the novel, Frida makes an observation, something like she was thinking about how it might be nice to go to a place where she didn't have to pretend all day and all night that she had a right to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, when most humans did not think she had that right. Mm-hmm. 
And then I thought it was so interesting to compare Frida's longing for a safe place to call home to Raoul the Raven's description of how birds think about their nests, where he says, he talks about how a nest is just a temporary assemblage of bits and pieces, <laughs> and it's an ephemeral dwelling, and um, you know, birds live to see the world, not to claim it, is, is what he says. And can you tell us more about what you wanted to explore about this idea, about the idea of home and also of homelessness? Well, I had to, I knew I wanted to use these characters. And so I had to stick to what was plausible about them. Um, I know that um, one of the problems that we have with domesticated horses is that a lot of horses are stuck inside of stalls. Um, hopefully they will get turnout. Some of them live um, in turnout most of the time. Um, so I had to deal with that. But the other ones... I just had to figure out how they would most likely be comfortable, what would make them comfortable, what they would want. Now, the thing about Frida was that she loved her house. She loved her chair, which, and she loved her toys. But once she got outside, wham, she was off. Mm -hmm. And um, one time we were, we took her to the beach and, we were just walking along and suddenly she ran up the hill and um, she came back with a bird. Oh. Couldn't help herself. Yeah. And so just to think about those intrinsic issues and then to situate them in Paris where they have to be outside in the winter or they have to figure out something else to do. I mean, Frida was the most fascinating one because I did not, I wanted her to have been with this really eccentric musician that people know about, but who has an absolute obsessive obsession with not being trapped inside. Mm -hmm. So Frida's attached to him, but he has never given her a home. And yet she lives in a place where, and we've all been, those of us who've been to Paris have all seen this, all the dogs are very well controlled by their owners all the time. So she can't look like a mess. Mm -hmm. She has to look stylish and beautiful and clean and all of that. And she knows that because that's the way she was raised. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just sort of one step at a time. And I, I rewrote the book a whole bunch of times and tried to make each time I tried to make the animals both more interesting and more believable. So um, this is what came up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Came yeah. Um, there's a moment toward the end of the book, and I'm not spoiling anything, but Paris is sort of weighing... She's had her some freedom that she hadn't had before, and she has some responsibilities that she hadn't had before, and she's sort of a little bit thinking about life in the stables and kind of a sense of purpose with race, race, mm -hmm. her racing. And it felt a little bit like she was having a moment before she, a coming of age moment, 
<laughs> that's what I felt. And I'm wondering whether you think maybe of the book a little bit as a coming of age story. Um, and if so, could you say a little more about what you think it means to, you know, leave childhood behind and come of age? Well, I think what it means is that you suddenly start seeing the larger picture. Mm -hmm. You spend yeah. your childhood wanting stuff, knowing what you want, trying to get what you want, and being restricted most of the time. You know, mm -hmm. your, you, mm -hmm. your parents teach you to always cross at the crosswalk, to always wait for the green light, to always um, say uh, yes and no and thank you and please. You know, your parents teach you those things. Mm -hmm. But those, and those are good things to learn. I'm not dis disagreeing with that. But they don't conform to the things that you think you really want to do. I I have a friend who I reconnected with, and when we were friends, she remembers this, but I didn't. Um, but when we were friends, and I was about, we were both about three, she remembers us walking down the street and then walking for two more blocks, looking around, not having any idea where we were, and then just walking up to the nearest house and knocking on the front door and um, telling that woman that we were lost. You know, we were three years old. Yeah. And, you know, what, what, what were we thinking? Well, we weren't thinking about anything. We were just walking. We were just looking. We were just being curious. And I remember that a lot about childhood, about how, you wanted what you saw mm -hmm. and um, you didn't have the knowledge to, to give it any sort of have any questions about it. Hmm. And so when you come of age and let's say that's around your early teens, you suddenly realize the, the um, what's the word, the difficulties that surround the things that you want. no, Jane, you're not going to have a horse that lives in the living room of our house. But you'll write about one day. <laughs> you feel like you do. <laughs> well, I did grow up reading, and I loved the books, that all kinds of books. But I loved reading books, and I loved imagining the things that those um, children were allowed to have and allowed to do. Yeah. And not just horse books, but other books too. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I guess that was how I learned to have a fantasy life. Yeah. We'd love to talk to you a little bit about your nonfiction book, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. Oh, sure. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so in that book, you describe how Charles Dickens struggled to write Our Mutual Friend and that he never liked the book, even though you think it there's a case to be made that it's one of his most perfect novels. And then you also describe in detail what it felt like for you to write various novels of your own. Some of them came mm -hmm. easily, others less so. Do you think there's any relationship between how it feels to write a book and how the book turns out? Or do you think it's like pregnancy where you can spend nine months you know, <laughs> growing up and then have a perfectly healthy baby? <laughs> well, 
I think it varies from book to book. I mean, the book I had the hardest time with was um, Private Life. And I, I didn't really expect to have a hard time with it. It's about a young woman. Uh, it takes place in the late 19th, the early 20th centuries. And it's about a young woman who's basically married off uh, by her mother to a local man who she doesn't even realize at the beginning is a crackpot. And he turned, he, he was based on a kind of famous physicist, physicist and astronomer who um, came from the town that my grandfather came from and was such a well-known crackpot that even when I mentioned him to somebody, uh, a local physicist here, in say 2008, he said, "Oh, that guy! Wow, was he a crackpot?" You know? <laughs> yeah. And it just fascinated me. First of all, it fascinated me how a woman would put up with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also fascinated me about how he could be who he was. And the hardest part was having any kind for me was having any kind of empathy for this guy. And that bit went through many, many um, drafts because I just couldn't make the guy come alive. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's, there's always that issue that there'll be characters that you don't understand. Um, there'll be issues or themes that you don't know anything about. And I didn't know anything about physics. So I had to learn a, a lot of stuff about that. <coughs> And there'll be history that you don't understand either. So one of the things I knew was that um, the real guy had had a job for the Navy up in Vallejo, California. So I went up to Vallejo and I, I, I read about the history of that area. And I realized that one of the things that they would have been present for was the internment of the... Um, Asian Americans around the time of the second world war. And so I knew I had to get that in there. So I had to learn about that. So that was a book where I, I had this weird little idea. And then the more I added to it, the more I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. um, other books that I've written, um, probably the, uh, horse heaven is a good example. I just was fascinated. I, I, after I got into horses, then I started going to the races and I just start, got fascinated by it. And it wasn't hard to learn about it because trainers and people who worked on the racetrack at the racetrack loved to talk about it. So all I had to do was basically pay attention to my horses and then listen to everybody talking and to go and look at it. Um, <clears throat> the the weirdest experience I had was writing the Greenlanders. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Iceland in on a Fulbright uh, in graduate school, I got really interested in the sagas and then in the Norse colony on Greenland. And I read a lot of sagas and I read the history of the of the Norse in Greenland. And I sat down, I fiddled, fiddled, fiddled. I tried, you know, I wanted to make it as 
as realistic as possible. So about the first 50 pages, I was scratching my head and then zip. It seemed like it just came from above hmm. or below. I don't know. Just, <laughs> Probably below. No. Yeah. Couldn't really come any higher. <laughs> it just seemed to flow. And I never had that experience before. And I've never really had it since. Mm. And I don't know why that was. But every book has basically been different. Some have been fun. Some, some have been hard. Some have been interesting. Some have been, uh, I just have loved them. You know, I loved Moo. Because um, got, I got to be funny. It was a real break from the darkness of a thousand acres. Um, I loved the all true travels and adventures of Liddy Newton because I got to become more informed about the pre-Civil War era and to spend time in Kansas and to pay attention to that sort of aspect of American history. Excuse me. So each one has been different and some are more, more fun than others, but Everyone is a puzzle in some way, and I love to I love to solve puzzles, and mm -hmm. so I think that's what keeps me going. Can you say a little more about the the process of writing Perestroika? I, I'm assuming it was fun. I don't know. Oh, I know absolutely. That, yeah, I know that you have said too that um, that you tend to write the the whole story as a first draft and then go mm -hmm. back and and work on the pieces that aren't working. And I'm wondering whether there was something in particular about perestroika that you had to continuously work with. Continually, continuously. Well, I I can't get right. Yeah, <laughs> what I imagined was some French person reading it and saying, no, this, is, yeah. this, isn't, this isn't what's really going on there. This is the wrong address. This is, you know. Um, but I didn't imagine. I just enjoyed it so much and every time i would go there and walk around and and look around i would have another little idea so i just i can't say that it was difficult i can only say that the whole time i was writing and i said well to myself okay so we'll publish this one after i'm dead <laughs> oh god why then, i just thought it was so weird and so odd for me you know <laughs> And then um, I guess it was in uh, 2019, the summer of 2019, I said to my editor, you know, I, I'm going to show you this book. And I think it, this would be a good book to publish around the time of the election, just as a distraction. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea whether she was going to go for it or not, but she did. So yeah. that was um, that was a lot of fun. We didn't know that COVID was going to come, but well, which um, just meant that we needed the distraction <laughs> more, a gazillion yeah. times more, right? Yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> so we just have one more question. Um, and I think it'll be a really nice note to end on, but in 13 ways of looking at the novel, you have, you include a, marvelous quote from Muriel Spark. And it's, um, I wasn't writing poetry and prose so that the reader would think of me as a nice person, but in order that my sets of words should convey ideas of truth and wonder, 
as indeed they did to myself as I was writing them. So Julie and I were wondering, are there ideas of truth and wonder that your words conveyed to you as you wrote Perestroika in Paris? Well, because I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> um, how I was going to do it, I would just throw it on the page. And then the next day I would read it. I read aloud to my husband, whatever I'm writing, I read that aloud to him. And I would read it and think, oh, that's, that's fun. I like that. Mm -hmm. So my, my experience of writing is that you just do the best you can. You put it on the page. Some of it, when you come back to it the next day, looks great. And some of it you can just cut. But everything stimulates you to move in the next move the next direction, move mm -hmm. the next step. Everything that you have written will produce something that might be better. Or everything that you have written might be good enough. So you can just keep on going. Um, your thoughts organize themselves around what you've written, not before you write it, but around what you've written. And then you do the best you can to keep them organized as you keep going. Um, and that's the pleasure as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I always say there's two kinds of writers. Um, and one of them writes out of the desire for resolution of some of, one of their own issues or some of their own issues. And other ones just write out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those people, those I think of people like, Jane Austen, um, Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope as writers who write out of curiosity. And um, that keeps them sort of moving in the world and exploring and watching and eavesdropping and paying attention just because they want to find out stuff. Yeah. And that's... And the kind I am, yeah. I was, you took the <laughs> words out of my mouth. I was going to ask you, and is that the kind of writer you are? I was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because I don't have my, I don't have anything traumatic to explore. Mm -hmm. My life has been ple a pleasurable life. Um, my family was a lot of fun and very decent. And so I don't have any traumas to explore, but I loved reading and I loved the books that I read and it just seemed a natural next step to go on and do it. Well, I'm so happy both that you had no trauma and that you're very curious <laughs> so we can benefit from the curiosity. Yeah. And and I'm very grateful for you to you for talking to us today. This is Oh, well, that was lovely. a lot of fun. Thank yes, you. thank lovely. you so 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 much. <laughs> <laughs> okay well be well and thank you again thank you. yes thank you, and guys. thanks for everyone for watching the miami book fair yes yes <laughs> bye Take care bye bye bye